All right, so we're going to go, we're going to look at uh, letter, letter number four. We're going to do four, five, six, seven, and eight. Today, uh, let me go ahead and read the, uh, the uh, highlight, the overview that I have typed up for you here, and then we can have some conversation. So, letter number four, addressing the, quote, painful subject of prayer. Screwtape describes to Wormwood how to make Christian prayer ineffective. First, Screwtape says, prevent them from serious consideration of prayer in the first place. That's always a good place to start. And then secondly, if that doesn't work, encourage the person to make their prayers overly spiritual and self-focused rather than practical. Get to that in a minute. Some methods include... Could you all turn your cell phones off before we get started? This was, they were going off all week last week. Thank you very much. Some methods include making prayer overly spiritual, ignoring bodily position, making prayer about generating emotion and keeping humans focused on false ideas of God. Screwtape warns that, I love this, God is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits and to human animals on their knees. I love that. He pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. Quote, paragraph number four. Now, there's a lot in, those, in, that, um, in that, but uh, let me just say a couple of things. Did you, um, when, when people say, we, let, let's pray, let me, let me back up. When people say we're going to pray about something, or if you go to like some kind of a prayer meeting, do people typically stand up and pray, pray formal prayers out of a prayer book? Or what do they do? They do the sort of extemporaneous prayer, right? When I was in seminary, uh, we would be in the chapel praying the prayers of the people, for example. And, uh, and then it would be, there, was, there was time for prayer. And, and I'll never forget kneeling next to my friend, Father Tommy Allen. We were both laymen. And, uh, and uh, the people in the front would just go, on, Lord God, we just, we just, we just, Lord God, we pray, we just. And Tommy said, and we're kneeling there, and he goes, yeah, dude, just like that. <laughs> and, and I had a friend of mine actually call them, uh, I don't know, magic marker here, note to self, get those. Um, he was, we used to call them Jesus, we just prayers. Jesus, we just ask, right? Jesus, we just, here's the thing, right? I have no problem with extemporaneous prayer. Extemporaneous prayer is a good thing. However, what is extemporaneous? Extemporaneous prayer means just sort of praying as the spirit moves you, right? Uh, thank you, Father. Appreciate that. Like you pray for a magic marker and voila, they appear. <laughs> You're hired. So, uh, but actually, let me just challenge you on this. That's actually not, not always effective. The reason being, when you go into extemporaneous prayer, you ever been to a prayer thing where people just go on and on and on? You ever done that? Okay. Again, I don't want to be critical of people's intentions, but screw tape is actually encouraging that kind of prayer. Let me give you an example. When I was in Red Bank, New Jersey, I was asked to serve on the Billy Graham crusade. I was the only guy with a collar, and I was on the, task, the uh, leadership team. There's about eight or nine pastors in, in the area of, uh, of uh, Monmouth County, New Jersey. He was going to be at that place. What's that Methodist camp down in uh, Asbury Park? Anybody know? Sorry? Ocean Grove, that's it. So he was going to be there. Just, anyway, so we would get together. And of course, when you pray, it was always like a prayer war, right? Because you'd pray, and the next guy would have to pray even more. And the next person would pray even more. Yes, Lord. And, they're just, and then I, it got to me. And I said, Lord, we are going to stand here and pray in the words that our Lord gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
how I, and they all, and it, you could have heard a pin drop, because I was, and, and, and I'm saying that to you because I, I really, and again, I'm not knocking extemporaneous prayers, I'm not knocking the uh, desire of someone to pray extemporaneously, but when Jesus says pray, he actually says when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, don't be afraid, don't let people make you think that formal prayers are somehow not as effective as just going off the cuff. Does that make sense? I think that's important because, the, because if, you, if you spend a lot of time in circles like that, at least in my experience, maybe your mileage varies, but it's awfully, it's awfully tempting to use those prayers to generate emotion, right? And to use them as weapons. How many have ever done, Lord, I just pray that Father Josh would get over his drinking problem. And I just, you know, that kind of stuff. It happens. I, I had someone just do it to me on a Facebook post not too long ago. Uh, so the point being, don't be afraid of this idea of formal prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And he tells you, our Father who art in heaven. So that is the, that's the model, right? The Psalms are a great way to, the Psalms are prayers. They are prayers set to music, but you don't have to sing them. We do in the big church. But there are, written prayers are not uh, less spiritual just because they're not emotive. Screwtape says, encourage the the, your patient to make his prayers all about generating emotion. Right? Any comments on that? I think, I think that could be a very dangerous, a very dangerous thing. Uh, and then also, one thing I thought was just really cool about that letter, and then I'll make some questions here for you. He says, I love this quote here, that God is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits. As we go along through the screw tape letters, you'll learn from screw tape the reason he, the reason demons in general loathe you, humans and I, is because we're made in God's image and we're physical beings. And, and then right here, he says here, uh, and are as pure spirits, and to these human animals on their knees, he, God, pours out, pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. It's this pride. What do you make of that? Do you think, and again, he talks about, again, formal prayer being something very useful and, and beneficial, right? And the second he, thing he talks about as uh, to prevent people from doing is actually kneeling when they pray, or praying in an, an intentional position. You know, you and I are physical beings, right? What you do with your body determines a lot of times how you feel about something, right? If you're watching TV, or you're in a room and there's a lot of noise and distraction, and you're praying, are you praying well? Not necessarily. So he says, make them think, Screwtip again says, make the, make the patient think that how and where he prays doesn't matter. It's all about generating emotion. It's all about generating spontaneity, right? So uh, let me just challenge you. People say, why do you guys, you guys, your Episcopalians are so weird. You know, you kneel when you pray. Yeah, you know why? Because to kneel when you pray is a, is a position of, of submission to God. You and I, friends, are physical beings. What you do with your body affects how your spirit works. We are not, you know, these two different mind and spirit things. We are a, a a unique species, both you know, made in God's image, but physical, but also having a spiritual component. How you pray, where you pray, matters. Any observations on that? Yes. Question. Okay. Question. So if something happens to you, let's say, yeah. or somebody's ill, or you want, to, you know, some, let's say something happens, and yeah. you are in the moment, and you 
No, no, let me, let me be clear about that. I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking extemporaneous prayer. I just did it 30, uh, two minutes ago. I prayed extemporaneously right in front of you here before we started this session, right? So I'm not, thank you for that. I'm not saying extemporaneous prayer, prayer that you just wing it, okay? Non-formal prayer. They're good and holy things to do, right? But what I'm saying is that uh, or ordered prayer, right? Formal prayer, the Magnificat, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, written prayers, are the anchor, right, upon which all these other things occur. You will sometimes meet uh, non-denominational evangelicals or people that don't come from a liturgical background that if you pray out of a book, they think you're, they think you're just not very religious. And I'm just trying, all I'm trying to say to you actually is just to caveat that, that, you know, the Lord, when he says pray, he actually gives us a way to pray. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, if you want to pray for somebody extemporaneously, go for it. But also recognize that formal prayer is helpful because it, it takes you out of the picture and your emotions and it makes you fo focus on something which is biblical, uh, pre-planned. Yeah, uh, uh, Janet. I was going to say whether it's extemporaneous or formal, it direct, it seems like, is the message that he's trying to get across. Direct is the message. Yeah, well, that's incredible. I, and, and actually, you know, one thing too, uh, a lot of you know, people say, some people, when they pray, they pray for a really, really, really long time. I've known people that pray for hours a day. I don't. My, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying that they're just two different things, right? My prayers are short and sweet, right? I'm a left-brain guy. That's how I am. Lord, Lord, bail me out again. Amen, right? It's pretty much, pretty much it. Bail out Bill Shankland again, right? That's, so, but sometimes prayers of, um, and this is a big topic, uh, forms of prayer, but Directing to the point seems to me to be sort of the biblical model, right? Good point, Janet. Yeah, Bill, you had a, com a comment? The Common Prayer is loaded with wonderful prayers. The Book of Common Prayer is loaded with prayers. And, and for every occasion. For everything. And they're wonderfully written. They're, they are. They, they take you out of the picture. Yeah, they do. And that's, the, that's the only point I'm trying to make here. I'm not knocking extemporaneous prayer. What I'm saying is formal prayer, particularly prayer out of Scripture, Jesus' own words, or the Psalms, right? Which a lot of the prayers in the prayer book are based on those two things. Um, uh, those are good because they are, they are not making you sucked into the context of the immediate. Does that make sense? That's all I'm trying to say. All I'm trying to say is hold those two things in tension, formal prayer and extemporaneous prayer. Make sense? Let's look at the questions here. So, uh, question number one. This one I find, <laughs> I think this is a cool question. What does Screwtape mean about the parrot-like nature of prayers in paragraph number two? He says, make the patient re recall the parrot-like nature of his prayers as a young boy. What does that mean, you think? If I say parrot-like, what does that mean? Wrote, right? Wrote prayer. And is Screwtape being critical of rote prayer? What's he actually doing? He's, ma he's making the per he's saying when he says, what does Screwtape mean when he says, remind the patient of the parrot-like, aka rote prayers of his child. Remind him of that. Why would Screwtape want to remind you of that? Why do you think? The person's not thinking about it. And they're also, think what they're thinking is the prayer is not it's a formal prayer, and therefore it's not something which they own. And, and I'm actually trying to, this is a subtle nuance I'm trying to give to you here, that when, the, the, when you think back to, and a lot of people do this, well, when I was a kid, I used to pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again, or the Hail Mary, whatever you might pray. And they just, and because they're formal prayers, as we get older, we dismiss them. 
right? As rote, we need to be expressive. And, and actually, what Scripture is saying, encourage that. Encourage them to think of rote prayer as parrot-like rather than being rote prayer actually something which is effective, right? Make sense? Okay, number two. Uh, yes, sure thing. I've read about the Islamic madrasas. Yes. They got those kids in there and they just... All day long. Yeah. Is it just memorizing? Okay, so an Islamic madras, this is again, this is a whole topic of prayer, which is a huge topic, uh, but briefly I'll just comment this for you. Uh, a madras is a repetitive prayer. It's called, the technical term for that for, sort of prayer is called a mantra, right? And a mantra is a repetitive prayer over and over and over again. There's several of them. There's the rosary, right, which is a repetitive prayer, which is biblical, actually. Uh, there is the, the Orthodox have a prayer called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? And you pray it on a rope. The reason you do those sorts of prayers as a Christian is because a mantra serves one purpose, and it's to have you focus on something to keep your attention while you think about something else. Does that make sense? So if you know anything about the rosary, for example, the rosary is broken up into prayers of 10 prayers each. And it's like the first decade is maybe... Uh, the con Immaculate Conception. So as you're praying the rosary, whatever it is, you're praying the rosary, a mantra, it centers your mind so you can sort of meditate on this other thing. Does that make sense? But what Christians don't do, and this is what I want you to hear loud and clear about that point, it's not like if you throw a whole bucket load of prayers at God repetitively, you're going to, you know, push your, get yourself over the finish line. <laughs> you know, Jesus says, men that make long prayers for the show of men, right? You don't want to do that. So if you, if, you, if you do long prayers, repetitive prayers is a way to set your heart in a, uh, in a position of focus, right, like meditation, then go for it. If you're just praying repetitive prayer to sort of crank out a whole bunch to maybe, you know, get yourself over the goal line and convince the big guy to do what you want him to do, then you're looking at it the wrong way. Is that clear? Yes, no? Okay, thanks. Um, here's another good one. Uh, what mental images do we use in prayer? When you pray, Screw Tape says, always make the person focus on, the, he says, they have, when, when, the, when human beings pray, they've got all these different ideas of what they're praying to. Right? Is that true? Right? Uh, he says, make them focus on that thing. Make them focus on whether it's an, an, an image of, of God being an old man with a beard or God is, I think he says, God is up into the left somewhere or in a crucifix or somewhere. Make, in other words, Screwtape is saying make them focus on the, the image they have and the object, if, they, if you can get them to focus on an object, get them to do that rather than focusing on the real thing. Now, the point I want you to see here is that's, that's inevitable, Right? Does every one of you have an image of God when you pray? I do, right? Right? Uh, it is inevitable that you have an image of God. And so you can't get around that, right? You can try not, you can have the image of God, but Screwtape is saying, make them focus on that thing as God. And what I'm cautioning you on as the, as the anti-Screwtape advice is when you have an image of God, and he even says this, don't let them realize that what they're praying to is an image and not the real thing. So just if you have something in your mind, okay, you have to have something, right? If you hold on, a, if you hold on to a cross to focus your mind or you have a, a place that you pray or you pray in front of the, the uh, Christus Rex in the, in the church, that great big statue of Jesus as a Christ the King, if you pray and that's your focus of your attention, okay, that's not a bad, just realize that it's a piece of wood, right? Just keep that in mind, even though you're, but the, uh, what it represents is what you're praying to. That's all. Any observations or questions? I yeah. Time, like what it should be like. I, I love that opening segment of John where he said, "In the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was God and the Word was with God. What's the image? What is, what's the truest image? There is none. I mean, unless you can somehow think of how to conceptualize the Trinity, good luck. That's my point. You're going to always have something in your mind which is going to be, I think Lewis even says, savage and puerile, right? Uh, you have something in your mind which is inaccurate. But just recognize that it's inaccurate when you pray to this concept of God that God is a lot bigger. And really the, big, really the thing is to have your psyche open to God that you're praying to. I think that's the big thing. Any questions? All right, let's move on to letter number four, or five. So um, this, is a, this one I thought was very, very helpful. I hope you did. Uh, I have a, my background on it here, and then we can talk through it. Uh, Screwtape addresses the war in Europe with essential disinterest. Right? War is entertaining to, the, to demons, but it is dangerous because it leads humans to fight for a cause larger than themselves. They begin to think of things. And it's interesting, even if, even if it's a cause which God does not like, right? He, Screwtape says that he, he actually admires these human beings for having, for having an ideal of something which is, even if it's something which God doesn't like, the fact that we're thinking about bigger things than ourselves. But war, war is entertaining to demons because it is dangerous and it leads humans to fight for causes bigger than themselves. Furthermore, war leads many to turn toward the Lord and men that go to battle are often prepared ahead of time for the possibility of their own death. Right? That is true. So if you think about it, if you're a demon, the last thing you want are men going off to battle thinking about their own death. Because then they're going to write letters to their wives and their families, their husbands. They're going to be thinking about these things, right? They're going to be thinking about the end. If you're a demon, that's the last thing you want, you want them to do. What you want to do is keep them in, uh, in contented worldliness and not thinking about such things, right? So what does he say? He says, um, he says uh, far better... Uh, it says, men, here's a quote, men are killed in places where they know they might be killed. And if they're in the enemy's party at all, they are prepared. Isn't that something? And it's funny, we often think of war, well, I don't know, most people would think of war as something which the devil would just crave and love. And Wormwood actually gets a taste of it. It's really kind of a creepy the way he puts it. But uh, he says here, um, uh, here says, he says, Wormwood's like, like screw tape man. He must have said it in the letter. You don't have it, but you can infer it. Wormwood must have been really excited about the, the, the World War II, right? This is great stuff. Human suffering and tragedy and the anguish of a human soul. This is what we live for. And Screwtape says, ah, young fellow, you are not delirious. You are only drunk. I love this. It's so creepy. He says, for the first time in your career, you have tasted that wine, which is the reward of all our labors, the anguish and bewilderment of a human soul. If any present self-indulgence on your part leads to the ultimate loss of the prey, this is paragraph number two, uh, you will be left eternally thirsting for that draft of which you are now much enjoying your first sip. That's, that's great stuff. <laughs> and so the point he's trying to make here is that, you, the, that while Wormwood, right, and most people think of war as the devil using it to destroy humanity, Screwtape's like, ah, yeah, better yet. He says, better yet. Where was it? In, um, I, men are... How much better, this is in paragraph number three, how much better for us 
if all humans died in costly nursing homes, amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence. That is what they want. You know, when I go to, do, when I go to the hospital to visit somebody who is on their deathbed or potentially, I mean, we're all, it's, we're all you know, it's not a matter of if, but when, right? So let's just be clear about that. I always, unless the family tells me, tells me refuses it, I will, and I try to encourage them in this, but I will almost, well, I will always say to the person with the family's permission, you're dying. You would be, you would be stunned how many people don't know. And you would be stunned how many families are afraid to tell them. And I say, well, wait a minute. This person is dying. Would you want to know? Would you want to know? Sure. I would want to know. And, if, and as a priest, I would say to the family, listen, it's my job as a priest to get this person ready. And one thing I will say to you too, when you tell somebody who is dying that they are dying, and some of you have been there when I've done this, when you tell somebody they are dying, the, there is peace there. The Holy Spirit, and this is the whole thing, the Holy Spirit gives peace to that person at that last moment. I've seen it hundreds of times. What Screwtape is saying is, you know, and, and I'm, what I'm trying to see, say to you pastorally is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be honest. Screwtape wants us to, you know, Screwtape says, wouldn't it be better if they all died amongst people who lie to them? Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Do you guys have any opinion on that? And again, if you've, if you've had somebody die that you didn't tell because you were afraid, I'm not, I'm not knocking you for it. I'm not saying you're a bad person. What I am saying is that uh, I think as a Christian, we realize that death is not the end. And also that the Holy Spirit does in fact give, I mean, I've seen this so many times, profound peace to somebody at that moment. Anybody here ever seen that? You haven't? I've seen it. I can't tell you how many times. And it's not, it's not, it's not me. It's not even, I'm sorry, I'm stand by, I gotta stand behind, them, behind that, right? It's not even earthly, it's spiritual. I've seen it. Um, I won't give any names specifically, but some of them you probably know. Any, any observations on that? Do you think that's cruel, what I just said? Yes, Muggs? I think for the family that is there, when you do that, it gives them peace and an avenue to accept what's coming. Yeah. And, and you would be, again, as a Christian, you would be amazed how many times the Lord, the peace which passes understanding, yeah, somebody else? Yeah, Janie. Uh, my husband, all of our married life, taught Sunday school. Yeah. But he would not discuss his own personal faith. Interesting. Just, that was, so people knew to discuss it with him. Yeah. Uh, when you saw him, when he was dying, yes. Father Chris said, Bob, do you believe in Jesus? And Bobby said, of course. And Father Chris said, are you afraid? And he said, no. Right. And from that moment on, he put his little head down and never woke up. Was, never woke up again. Yep. I am, I'd forgotten about that, actually, the specifics. I'll always be grateful to you because I'm so glad he heard himself say it. He did. That's what I asked him. I said, I heard him. And I will say to people, you know, the Lord is coming, you are, you are dying, or the Lord is coming to take you, or are you, are you ready to do this? And if not, 
Let's have a conversation. You would be, you know, and just think of it this way. If you were, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I know people want to be pastoral and loving and don't want to upset their, I, I get all that. Believe me, I'm a pastor. I get all that. But think about it like this. Would you want to know? And the answer is probably what? Yeah. So I just challenge you on that. Let me, let's look at some questions here. So um, here's, a, here's question number one. Screwtape says that in times of war, one of their best weapons, demonic weapons, one of their best weapons is, is uh, contented worldliness is rendered useless. Isn't that something? This is, this is counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it is true. Screwtape says that in time of war, one of their best weapons, demonic weapons, contented worldliness is rendered useless. What does Screwtape mean by that? And is he right? I think you've got to go to the contrast of why people are going to volunteer and, and risk life, life and limb. They, they, they're understanding of service before self. That's right. Higher, higher goods and so forth. Nobility, that's right. You are appealing, that's right. So he's making the observation that when you, when in wartime, uh, look at the Civil War, right? You're the North and the South, right? They could not, they were ironically all Christians and they would pray. There's, there's lots of great stories there. But here are two groups of people that had a fundamental disagreement about after slavery, well, not always, some of that was states' rights and all that, but these people would go, they were fighting for a cause which they believed was higher than themselves. Now, even if God disapproves of one or both of those causes, the point that they are fighting for something above themselves is in and, of itself, in, in and of itself a noble thing. It moves your psyche from your focus on contented worldliness here to something bigger than yourself. And Screwtape is terrified of that because once you get rid of contented worldliness, who knows where this goes, right? I'll give you an example. We're, we're right now in the midst of, I think, an overblown, uh, and, and I could be wrong, so I, I don't want to say that. I, uh, this coronavirus thing. You guys have heard about that, right? <laughs> by the way, by the way, Bill Shanklin emailed me yesterday and said, does the parish have anything about this? And I said, no, we didn't have anything. We, um, it's going to go out today. The bishop put a letter out. Yeah, so we, I'm distributing that. And uh, no more intinction, folks. No more dipping and flipping. Namas. We're going to stop. That. But anyway, that's all in the email that's coming out, and I'll announce it on Sunday. But the, for this thing today, this point, this coronavirus thing has gotten people freaked out, hasn't it? Do you think so? Yeah. I, think, I, think, I think too much. I think it's way beyond. No, it could, get, it could get to the point where it's a pandemic and people are dropping like flies. That could happen. I don't know. Not a doctor. But given the risk of it, and the, to me, I think it's a little bit fear-mongering. But that's another matter. Better to be safe than sorry, right, as my dad used to say. Uh, but here's the thing. Once you get into that point where people are thinking about that, right, pandemic, that brings people thinking about their own demise, right? And that's important. I remember when I was uh, at a church in Red Bank, New Jersey, before I came here. Some of you know where that might be. It's right, you can literally see, it's right in the, if, you, if you're in the Manhattan, lower Manhattan, and you shoot a rocket across to New Jersey, you'd hit where I used to live. So we had a lot of people that, I was not there in 9-11, in, in but when I got there in 04, when I got there, I forget now, um, there people, a lot of people had died as of 9-11, and everybody said the churches were packed. You remember, were they here? They probably were here, right? People were spooked. They were, this idea of contented worldliness, that everything's just going to be fine, let's just float along, where the devil wants you, right? Nice and numb, right? right? A little, bit of, uh, a little bit of TV at night, a couple glasses of wine, and just the world is good. 
That's, where he, that's exactly where he wants you, because he wants you to be con contented worldliness, right? And again, we all, fall, we all fall into this. That's the point of the book, that we all fall into this. But these wars and pandemics and terrorist attacks, when the bottom falls out, think of it like this. It is an opportunity to be reminded of the shortness and tenuousness of life, right? And that's an important thing to remember. And again, I'm not a morose person or a um, you know, negative, but it's important to remember that life is tenuous, right? So, any, um, Don, you had a comment? To your point, uh, having been there at 9-11, um, those churches and services in the next 36 hours were wall to wall, and the city was closed, those of us were there. People in a very unlike New York City were caring about each other, and, and it was bigger than themselves. It was, it was, it was a huge Right, and so, yeah, so Don is saying when he was, in, he was there on 9-11 in the city, and the people, the churches were, I'm repeating so that, for the sake of the camera, just so you know, um, the, the churches were, were crowded, and the people were help, being nice to each other, which not something New, York, New Yorkers are known for. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, I was born in New York. Um, uh, but that's the thing, so, so screw tape wants to avoid that. So when Wormwood's like, yeah, this is great, a war, this is awesome, screw tape's like, no, man, you got it all wrong. Number two, despite its limited usefulness to the demonic, right? Despite its limited usefulness to the demonic, how might war and conflict be used in the temptation of a human soul? What do you think? Again, it's, this, is a, this is an open-ended question. To raise hatred. To raise hatred. Bill says, so I said, uh, how might uh, conflict and war be used uh, by the demonic, right? And Bill said to raise hatred, right? That's a good one. I mean... That's a, always, I'm sure the devil loves it when people are fighting and killing each other. That's in the name of religion or whatever it might be. What else, what else might the devil, how might, there's no God. what's that? There's That's a good point too. George said maybe, pardon me, that war can make people question the existence of God in the first place. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, why would God allow this to happen, right? There's been some... Um, that's a good, that's a very, that's another whole question. By the way, if you want some light reading, uh, that question of why do bad things happen to good people, which I talked on last year over Lent, is called the problem of theodicy. And it's actually pretty simple. The question is, somebody once said, this is clever, the question is not, this might have been Martin Luther, I don't know for sure. The question is not, why does God allow bad things happen to good people, but why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? That's the question. And again, Jesus dies, Jesus on the cross, Jesus, you know, Jesus, as always, sets the example, right? On the cross, he suffers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffers. Life is suffering. It's not because God doesn't love you, it's because we live in a fallen world. So, uh, Paul? Another way could be turning anger towards God, being angry at God. For yeah, that's another good, that's actually interesting. So, uh, it's kind of a parallel to what George said. War could lead a human to get angry at God. I actually... My experience uh, is when you find somebody who's actually angry at God, they're one step away, man. Because they're actually angry at, they acknowledge his, his existence, right? And so uh, that's, that's a good point. But I think um, much better to have contented worldliness, either to dismiss God altogether, God can't exist because of human suffering, or just to contented worldliness, just not care. Life's, I'm too busy to think about such things. Those bear a lot more fruit than actual anger, because once a person, in my experience, gets actually angry at God, that's a, that's a really slight move to them, because they're acknowledging his existence, by, by definition. Yeah? 
So, good point, though. Anything else? Yeah, they, they really cause the animal spirits to come out, sort of negative animal spirits. They do. Food, uh, you know, uh, anger, uh, the way they kill people, um, all the things that we temper in everyday life and are contented That's exactly right. Yeah, so Steve is making the, com the observation that war removes the social contract, doesn't it? it removes all of the social things that kind of keep society and culture together, right? Anybody, any of you ever been here during a hurricane scare? A lot of you fly way up north over the summertime. Uh, but if you're here when there's a hurricane coming along, it's a pretty thin line between chaos and society. It's like a really good book. A friend of mine named Bill Fortune wrote a series of books. Bill Fortune is a uh, professor of, of history at Montreat College, a devout Christian. Um, he's a Presbyterian, but we'll cut him some slack. And uh, he, I went to Iceland with him a couple of years ago. He uh, is great. He wrote a trilogy with Newt Gingrich on an alternative history of the Civil War. Anyway, he wrote three books, and one of them was about the, um, the explosion of an EMP in the atmosphere. An EMP is a nuclear device that renders useless all electronic devices, including cars and telephones and power-generating equipment, everything. And the book is about how, and it's, it, I think it's, it's terrifying and fascinating, because the book, it's called One Second After. One Second After the Thing Detonates. You don't even, no one even knows it happened. You can't, it's too far from the atmosphere to see it. Um, but society just breaks down. There's nothing works. You can't get food to Vero Beach without trucks, right? You can't pump water without generating equipment. It's real. It's a fascinating read. Scary, um, and people become tribal. What they do is they become tribal and they begin to do very bad things. Yeah. So, Paul, quickly. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Go, you know, you go there, you go there. Someone was telling me that even at Walmart now, the foods are empty of the shelves or the water's being taken because it's coronavirus. People are afraid of this pandemic. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you think that's bad, would stick around for a hurricane. All right, we're going to move along to letter number six. Um, we have three more to cover. Letter, screw tape. Um, Okay, this is a little bit different. Uh, so now that the war is inevitable, uh, the, the, the patient, uh, Wormwood's patient, finds out that he might be actually called, called up to serve in the war. So I'll read it. Screwtape is delighted to hear that the patient may be called to war. Here's the reason. This is so diabolical and so clever. There's a quote. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety. You can all, you can all rec resonate with this. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human heart against the enemy. Substitute worry in there, and you'll get the idea, right? Anybody here worry about stuff ever? Nah. <laughs> Wormwood's job is keeping the patient from realizing that his present fear is his appointed cross. Malice against the Germans will not bear much fruit. Better to have the patient direct his anger and anxiety towards those closest to him, where real relational damage can and will occur. That's a great chapter, by the way. Let me unpack a few things there. This idea of war creating anxiety and barricading the human heart against God. Do you think that's true? I do. I pastor people a lot, and I, a lot, many of you. And one thing which you, what you begin to see over and over again is what people really wrestle with the most is worry, right? Worry is trying to solve a problem which has not yet occurred. You've heard me say that before. 
And the reason, the reason, the reason, if you think about it as a Christian, if you think about it, right? And again, we're always called to think about these things. If God really is God, which we say that he is, and we believe it here. We don't always believe it here, but we do believe it here. If God is God, then what are you worrying about, right? Honestly, and we still do, right? This is the whole, this is the, this is the struggle we all wrestle with in this life, that if God is God, then what, what are you worried about, right? If God, Jesus says, what, if God knows even the number of hairs on your head, what are you worried about? Dying? You've raised from the dead. Who cares, right? What's the worst that can happen to you? Jesus has already conquered that, right? Yes? But we still worry. But we still worry. And that is, the human, that is the human condition. Again, the one thing I want you to, when you come away from this book, I want you to recognize one thing. You ready for this? You're all doomed. <laughs> No, and I mean that, that we are all, what I want you to, I don't mean, I don't mean, well, I'm being funny in a sense. The one thing I want you to w- walk away from reading the screw tape letters is this. Without Jesus, man, it's game over. Does that make sense? When I read this book, I shared this with you last time, if you weren't here. When I read this book the first time, I put it down and I said, I'm done. I can't, I said, Lord, I can't possibly beat this on my own. Because every time I read one of these letters, I'm in there, right? I worry, so do you. But I thought, Lord, I can't do this on my own. And he said to me, that's the point. So what I, this book is a very good diagnostic for us and to see the bigger picture, which is that Jesus actually solves it all. Yes? I was thinking back to pride. Yes. We worry because we think we're in control, we can correct it, we're in charge, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Therefore, that's why I think we worry. Yeah. Except instead of accepting the fact that it's God who's in charge, and if we just turn it over to him, it may not always be exactly what we want. It frequently won't be. Yeah, that's a good point. So she's making the observation, and I agree with you 100%. Worry, if you dig into it a little bit, is really pride. Because what you're saying is, Lord, I got this. And, you know, because, I mean, we all, we, I think everyone else in this room, if you're a Christian, would say, you believe that God has your best interest at heart, right? Well, let me rephrase that. That God has you at heart. Okay? It may not be what you want. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane made this very same question. Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine. Okay? Every, but we would, I think we would all agree as Christians that God is in control and loves us and cares for us probably more deeply than we care about ourselves. And he has the advantage of being omniscient, right? Which we don't have. Worry is essentially, just think about this, and I'm not being, saying this to be critical. I'm saying this as a pastoral matter. Worry is essentially pride. Saying, Either A, I know better, or B, God's not going to bail me out. Don't you think? Yeah. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that to you is if you're aware of that, when you worry, you can go, okay, I just got to get my head around this. I got to stop. I got to remember that Lord, the Lord's in control. And yeah, this might really, this might hurt. This might not be pleasant. This might cause, this might be a lot of suffering involved. That is true. But I know he's got me. And that will, that will actually help you in your worry. Is that has anybody here ever tried that before? Well, there's no question, you know. There's I, no question. I spent 30 years in, in the Navy and flying off aircraft carriers and doing all kinds of... Flying off an aircraft carrier will, make, will, will give you anxiety, I would imagine. Yeah, but what I learned in life was just, you do your best to prepare for it, and I never lost a minute of sleep over That's right. worry, because I always knew... God's will will be done. You know, know, come back to Stonewall Jackson. You know, this Stonewall Jackson, who was a devout Presbyterian and a five-point Calvinist, right, believed in, um, um, what am I looking for? 
predestination and election and all that. So anyway, which, okay, that's another whole kettle of fish. But he went out at the Battle of Bull Run on, I think it was Bull Run, wasn't it? And on horseback, and they said, General, get off the horse, you're going to get shot, because you're like a prime target, right? I mean, you're above the smoke, and you've got a flag next to you. It's like, you know, shoot that guy. And he said, when, my when the Lord is ready for me, he will take me, and not a minute sooner or later. That's guts. That's, that's actually faith. Of course, he was then later shot by one of his own men. That's another matter. But uh, that's another matter. So let's look at question number one. How does anxiety and worry barricade our heart from hearing and following Jesus? How does that, give me some, anybody have a, how does anxiety and worry do that? I think anxiety and worry and anger. And anger. Go together. They do. They're all based in pride. And everybody is angry yes. now. The Me Too people are, mad, are angry. Yeah. The liberals are mad at the whatever. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's angry. Yeah. Everybody's angry because everybody's worried. Yeah. And everybody's, so I think it's, I hadn't thought about that, Jenny. It's a good point. She says that anxiety, worry, and anger are all tied in. Anger is essentially pride, right? Either that someone's going to hurt me. Well, that's what it is. You're angry at, you get angry at somebody when, they're, when you're threatened by them. That's what makes you angry, right? If someone does something which you think is just detestable and making the culture go cuckoo, it makes you angry because it's a threat to you. Fair enough? Is that fair? And that's fundamentally pride, not trusting in God. Now, again, it's, it's, that's pretty spiritually advanced, but we all fall into that category, right, of having of our pride motivating these things. Um, how else might anxiety and worry barricade our heart from hearing God? We're too concerned about ourselves to hear him. Too concerned about ourselves to hear him? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would even say, you know, here's the thing, too. Have you ever been so worried you couldn't pray? Yeah. Well, that, guess what? That's not the right thing to do. You know, Judas Iscariot, he's the one who betrayed Jesus, right? This is actually, anybody here ever seen The Last Temptation? Not The Last Temptation. Uh, the Jesus movie by Mel Gibson. What's it called again? Uh, the Passion, right? Uh, Way too good. I mean, well, anyway, the, this, the scene in that movie where Judas, is, Judas betrays Jesus, I find one of the best insights into the demonic I've ever seen in my life. If you've ever seen it, Judas is one of Jesus' friends, right? Satan enters him, and he begins to, like, almost become psychotic. Like, he begins to see things. And what does he do? He is so, after he betrays Jesus, right, he throws the coins back, doesn't even keep the money, and he goes and he hangs himself. Why? Why would he do that? Because he doesn't think Jesus will forgive him. That is, I, well, I can't prove this, but I would say that may be the sin against the Holy Spirit, right? If you think God can't forgive you or won't, that is despair and pride at its high, highest mark. So, all right, let's move on. So letter number seven. We may, actually, we might even make this on time tonight. Am I going too fast? All right. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be uh, mindful of your time and be structured here. So, this is an interesting one. Letter number seven. Y'all read all these, right? Okay, good. And then we'll have a little discussion if we have, uh, if we have a few minutes left. Uh, letter number seven. Screwtape now addresses the topic of whether or not demons are free to reveal their own existence. The policy, he writes, the policy for the moment... Wormwood, is to conceal ourselves, but this has not always been the case. Screwtype ideal, remember, in, he says, and he refers to in the past, they would have, uh, you know, um, people that were sorcerers and different things in, in the Middle Ages, and the, the, um, 
in the New Testament, clearly you had people, you had demoniacs running around everywhere, right? So there were periods of time where demons were more, um, re would reveal themselves more fully. But now the current high, high command, the current directive is to conceal ourselves. And he says this, and I, when I read this 20 years ago, it didn't make any sense to me. This makes crystal clear sense to me now. He says, Screwtape idealizes the materialist magician as a demonic creation. Worshiping, this is great stuff, and man, this resonates with our culture today. Worshiping forces while denying spirits. And I'll unpack that for you in a second. Um, so he says, if we, Screwtape says, if we can create the materialist magician, a magician is somebody who believes in cosmic forces and spiritual power, but then also denies its existence. He's a materialist, okay? Does that make sense? All right? And you know anybody here who says, I don't believe it, I don't go to church, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious? That's the person. Or somebody who, uh, who will say they don't believe in God, but they'll burn incense or they'll, I don't know, put a Buddha statue in their house. They don't know why it's there or what it even does. Or they'll hang spiritual things around their house, but they don't actually pray or believe anything. Guess what that person is? A materialist magician. He then moves on to... Um, uh, let's talk about that for a minute. What, do you guys think this idea of the materialist magician... Um, it's question number two. The materialist magician was a goal for screw tape when it was written in 1941. Has, have the demonic forces made any progress in that regard? What do you think? This is an open-ended question. This is an opinion question. What do you think? Do you understand the question? The materialist, the materialist magician is a person who claims to have, in I don't know, spiritual powers, while denying that spiritual things actually exist. Yes. Anybody like that? Do you? You probably do. Sorry. May the force be with you. I hadn't thought about that. That's right. Star Wars. May the force be with you. Right. Yin and Yang. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about the force be with you. The force does, I guess in one sense, though, the force is a sort of God-like thing. It has a will, right? But I would, there's people that today, I mean, go to any, man, I'd go visit Katie in her college campus, which we'll leave unnamed for the moment. Um, and it's full of materialist magicians, right? People that love to have spiritual trinkets and things and talk about spiritual things and, and in the abstract only. But, man, you tell them you're a Christian and they would they'd have your head, right? They're so tolerant, they can't tolerate someone like you. <laughs> Anybody have an observation there? It's, it's a, yeah, what do you think? Universalism. It is. And it's, it's a small g God isn't everything and everything is God. So right. We can syncretize all beliefs and all thoughts and everything's valid and everything's equally good. Right. So... Yes, so his point is that, 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 that it's, it's essentially syncretistic and universalism, right? That we just sort to take all different gods and pile it into one big bucket and call it all the same thing. We all worship the same god, after all, people will say. That is completely nonsensical and ridiculous. It is, you know, I, I, would, I would submit that I worship the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're a Muslim, you worship a god, you're Allah, right? Which is only a, a, a being of one, I guess, one. It's... There's no Father, Son, and Holy, no, no Trinity there. We don't worship the same God. I mean, it's impossible because they would deny the divinity of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to. I'm not going to drive an airplane into, into a building over it, right? I'm not going to chop people's heads off over it. But I'm also not going to say we worship the same God because we don't. We mo we might both worship a God which is in similar in some respects, 
but it's not the same God. It can't be. Does that make sense, everybody? If you meet, if you meet somebody who's, and I'm not saying I don't like Muslims. I, think that, I just think that they're wrong. They're in error. I have to, and they would say, that, and if they were true, they would say the same thing about me. I knew a guy who was a Muslim in, um, in Pennsylvania. He was a great guy. Uh, he was very devout. He and I fundamentally disagreed on, on, on religion. And we would have great conversations because he would say, well, I'd say, well, uh, I can tell you his name. I, I can't agree with you because of this, this, this. And he would say, well, I can't agree with you because of this, this, and this. And I said, great. And we would just leave it at that, you know? That's where you have to leave it, that we just agree to disagree. We, this syncretistic stuff is toxic and it's pervasive. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, so let's see here. Uh, do demons still conceal themselves today? How might, question number one, how might they reveal themselves to us while trying to evade detection? Do demons still, does, do demons still conceal themselves today? I think so for the most part. I was talking to somebody last week who said that they were in uh, a South American country, I believe, is that right? And where they would see somebody who was actually possessed by a demon, which I, by the way, I do believe in. I think it's exceedingly rare, at least in the West, or at least in this country, because we just put people on morphine and drug them up, uh, honestly. But I, but I do think, uh, but if you, in some cultures that are more receptive to the idea, you'll see it more, right? Um, I told you about my friend, Father Don Gross, what he said about demons, I'm not going to tell you. I told you that last week, yeah. He was a psychologist, and he, I asked him once about possession. Possession, by the way, let me, let me qualify that. Demonic possession just means that your faculties are taken over by a demon. It is extremely rare, right? Um, I've never actually seen it myself. I have seen demonic influence, and I've seen demonic attack. That I've seen in spades. I've never seen somebody actually lose their faculties, like on the Exorcist movie, for example. I've never seen that firsthand. I know people that have, that I trust and admire and respect, and I take their word for it, because they're men that, um, in, that, in that circumstance, all men, that have been there and seen it. But he would say to me, uh, he would say to me, I said, well, Father Gross, how do you know? He was a psychologist. He would say, you just know. You know, things like speaking languages nobody speaks, or having superhuman strength, things like that. It's very, don't fear it, because it's extremely rare. By the way, if you're curious about such things, and I, I would caution you about being curious about such things, frankly, but the guy, you know that movie, The Exorcist? The girl that was possessed by a demon? That's a true story, actually. Um, it, it was from back in like 19, I don't know, 1920, maybe a little, right around that period of time. Uh, it was actually a boy, not a girl, and the guy who was the exorcist in that movie, or in the, in the movie, he was a real man. I can't think of his name. He's dead now. But he talked about it later in life and described it in detail. And it wasn't like, you know, head spinning and things like that. Like the movie is, you know, doing it for somatic effect. But he would describe things that occurred that were just otherworldly. And uh, anyway, so I don't think the devil does that to us now in the West because the, his great weapon for us is contented worldliness. If he goes to Africa, there's not much contented worldliness in Africa, is there? That's not a weapon he's going to use there because nobody has a whole lot of stuff. They're in a day-to-day uh, -day sustenance culture. So there he may reveal himself more, his attacks may be more overt than... Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, he did. He was in the midst of the Reformation. So again, Satan's going to attack God's work. 
He will attack God's work. God's work doesn't exist. He has no you're not if you live in worldly contentedness you are not a threat to him if you're the rector of a church of 400 people that's the fastest growing parish in the diocese he's going to notice and that's all I'm going to the quote for Forrest Gump that's all I'm going to say about that yeah it's true if you are doing God's work expect the counterattack, right but but Anyway, but it, it's also nothing to really worry about. Let me look at letter number eight. This, I, want to, I want to bring this law of undulation to you. This has actually been very helpful for me in my own walk, and I want to share it with you because it's helpful. Um, so Wormwood, many of you know, when you first, if you, if you come back to church or you were first converted, your initial vigor is sort of like, woo, this is great. I love it. It's, I found a church where people are awesome and, and everybody here is great and the Lord has really answered my prayer and I feel comfortable and confident and at peace here. Right? You're, you're all there at one point in your life. I hope. <laughs> right? Uh, and then eventually at some point, what begins to happen? It begins to wane. Is that, do you think it's true? Is that true just for me or for you too? Is your, is your spiritual life kind of go like, kind of go like, okay, here's you. And by your spiritual life, I mean sort of your level of, uh, I don't say enthusiasm, but your level of just, I don't know, what's a good word I'm looking for? Um, Engagement, enthusiasm, what's that? Sanctification. Sanctification, okay. Yeah, okay, all those words. Good stuff. Okay. But your level of religious experience, if you will, say you're here, right? And eventually it kind of goes like this. And then it kind of goes like this. And then it kind of, anybody, is it just me or has it just happened to you too? Is, that, is it just me? No. Is it you too? Yeah. Are there periods of time where you feel really, really attached and in love with your spouse? And sometimes you're like, oh yeah, I still love her, but you know, just kind of, we're in a, kind of in a rut. We're in a rut. Anybody here ever experienced that? Of course not. <laughs> or your job, right? I love my job. I can't wait to go to work. I have such fun when I go there. And then, oh man, it's kind of a grind. The point I want you to understand is that in everything, in everything, as, an, as he refers to us as amphibians, right? Spiritual and physical. In every part of your life, you will suffer from that. And he calls that the law of undulation. It's right here. It's in chapter 8. Wormwood is excited that the patient's religious phase is dying away. But Screwtape reminds him of the law of undulation. This is, a, for me, has been a huge thing to fall back on over my past 25 years as a Christian. He writes, humans are amphibians, part spiritual and part physical. I love that. It's a pretty good uh, metaphor. In their, in their minds, they can be set on heaven, to heavenly things, but their physicality is simultaneously at play. This is all my verbiage, by the way. You can use it as you see fit. The law of undulation states that man's religious feelings wax and wane, undulate back and forth over time. Screwtape points out that God uses the troughs more than the highs to have our faith increase. Corn doesn't grow on the mountains, but in the valleys. That's my, you can use that if you want. God's desire, God's desire for a willful, loving relationship with humanity means he can... This is actually really great stuff. He cannot override a human will. Our cause is never more in danger, Screwtape writes, when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe in which every trace of him, God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and obeys. Isn't that awesome? 
And the reason I'm telling you that is because you, in every aspect of your life, will go through that, including your, your sense of excitement towards your faith, right? And, when I, and if you look, if you look, Screwtape's point is, and this is, in my own experience, true. God does his best work, not when you're here. Man, this is great. I can't believe this is such a great church. That was a great sermon. And Father Gruner did a great job talking about whatever. He does his best work when you're here. And life just sucks. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. And you, but, you, but you hang on anyway. Because when you're here, and you know, Jesus says this on the cross, right? Jesus is always the example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that's not a, if that's not a trough, I don't know what is. Right? He's been there and done that. But the God, when, you, when the human will says, this is awful, terrible, rotten, but I'm going to trust you anyway, right? That is where God does his best work. And it's not because God is cruel. It's because at that point is when you begin to learn to really, really trust him. Um, what is, you know, many of you that come to Adult Forum know this already, but um, a lot of people don't know this. The Greek word, anybody know the Greek word for faith in the New Testament? Father Greater excluded. Does anybody else know? Does anybody know it? Pistis. Pistis. Sorry? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Pistis. Okay. This word, pistis. When you talk about faith in God, what do people think, what do most people think that means? If I say, do you have faith? You say, I believe in, they would say what? I what? I believe in God, right? God doesn't care if you believe in him. He does not care because you know what? Everybody does. People deny it. People refuse it. But scripture says, no, 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 no. Everybody believes in something bigger than themselves, right? We all do by nature. We're made in God's image. Faith, the faith that God wants in you is not believing that he exists. He doesn't care about that. What he wants, that word for pistis, the best translation for that word is not believing in some, that something exists. The best translation of that word is the word trust. What God wants from you is a heart that trusts him. That's what faith is. It's not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I believe in God. Who cares? Even Jesus says, even the demons believe and they shudder. So you believe in God? Yeah, big deal. I'll sell you a bridge in New York somewhere. This is, what, this is what real biblical faith is. It's learning how to trust God. How do you learn how to trust anybody at all? Experience. By experience. By them saying, if I say, if uh, Bill, I've used this example before, if I, got, if, Bill, if I say, hey, Bill, uh, can you pick me up at the airport on Tuesday at 5 o'clock? He says, yeah, I'll pick you up. And if he doesn't show up, I've learned I can't count on him. But if he does show up, I've learned that I can. Does that make sense? Faith is learned. Trust is learned experientially. Faith is learned experientially. And it's learned not in the heights. It's learned in the valleys. Because that's where you go, I got nothing, Lord. And he says, okay, well, watch this. And then you see, oh my, he really, he really did bail me out. And that's where, you're, that's where faith really is formed. That's why suffering is an important part of the Christian life. Not because God is cruel. And not because he doesn't love you, but because he does. And suffering is where you learn to trust him. What do you think of that? It's actually trust. Faith is actually the polar opposite of pride. Is that a new concept for some of you? For a lot of people it is. Um, but 
It shouldn't be because it's biblical. All right, we've got four minutes. Anybody have anything they want to toss out? Any funny jokes, you know, about demons and things like that? Anybody have anything? Yeah, Stacy. Uh, page 38, he really does want, he really, this is a screw, again, screw tape comes back to this theme over and over again, why he, why demons hate, according to Lewis, why demons hate humans. And he says, he re, and screw tape says, he really does, God really does want to fill the universe with, what's it say? Um, one person, please, because what's crazy? Oh, it Loathsome little replicas of himself. Yeah. Right. Not because. Right. Not because he absorbs them, but because their wills freely conform to his. It's called trust, faith. It's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. You were talking about what's the worst thing that can happen when you about dying. The worst thing that can happen Yeah. yeah. Anybody here ever met somebody who was evil? <laughs> I have. Anybody, well, let, me, let me rephrase that. Anybody ever met somebody and you could feel it? Yeah. Trust it. Anything else? I do want to close. By the way, if any of you availed yourself of the prayer of St. Michael? No? It's on the, uh, it's on the um, lesson plan paper, and um, we, I've been closing with it. Um, you don't have to pray it if you don't want to, but if you choose to, that's good. I, th I find it to be helpful, and it's pretty severe, but it's uh, considering the topic at hand, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, one more quick comment. Is anybody, is anybody really finding this book good? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not hard to read. I, I would encourage, and again, I said this last week, and I want to repeat it. This is not a deep dive. This is actually pretty, very, very high level, and I hope the notes that I'm giving you are helpful. Um, I'm, this is more of an introduction to the screw tape letters than it is a comprehensive review because this book, as I've read this over 22 years, every time I read this book, I come across with something new in it. It's not quite the level of scripture, obviously, in terms of its, uh, but it, it's very good. And I just want you to be uh, subjected to it and accustomed to it so you can come back to it over and over. I, I think it's just a really great book. So if, you're, if you feel like you're not getting everything, don't sweat it. There, there's short chapters. You can go back and read them again uh, at your leisure. So. Anything else? All right. Yes. One thing I think it's important to remember that C.S. Lewis went through a period of atheism. He did. And he is just emerging from it. That's a good point. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Um, she mentioned that C.S. Lewis has went through a period of atheism in his life. If you want to read his, uh, his conversion experiences, um, Surprised by Joy was his... his uh, is his uh, autobiography of his conversion experience. He was an atheist and a committed atheist and had become a Christian not too lo long before he wrote this book. So uh, it's pretty, I, I'd forgotten all about that. You're right. He's an interesting cat, man. C.S. Lewis is, that is. I've never actually said that before in my entire life. I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> Shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. We pray, Lord, for uh, your continued dwelling of your Holy Spirit amongst us. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who is the example in all things and the encourager to us and our hope and our example. 
St. Michael the Archangel, we ask you to defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into Satan all into hell, Satan and all evil spirits who prowl the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen.